0: Greetings, Mets fans. This is Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. We have a bonus episode for you this week. Jeff Paternostro has been traversing these United States to see Mets minor league baseball in Kingsport, Savannah, and Port St. Lucie. And in between GCL and PSL games on Thursday, he spoke to Paul De Podesta, the Mets vice president of player development and scouting, uh, about the team's international sightings the amateur draft, and the Mets minor league system uh, in general. So this is episode 126, which we'll call the Vlads Family episode. And now, here are Jeff and Paul.
1: So joining the podcast again, he is the Mets Vice President of Player Development and Scouting, Paul DiPodesta. Welcome back to the show.
0: Happy to be here.
1: So conveniently, we are recording on July 2nd, and it has... Been announced from various sources that the Mets have signed two high-profile shortstops, one out of the Dominican Republic and one out of Venezuela, Gregory Guerrero and Andres Jimenez. So we get you on the day of the signing. What can you tell us about these two guys?
0: Uh, well, first I'll just say as a disclaimer, nothing's quite official yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm not verifying those reports, but, ha- but happy to talk about. Okay, so know, those l- yeah, players.
1: that's to be fair. Let's uh, so sure. the Mets have there's expressed interest in these two players. <laughs> Um,
0: yeah you know our our guys internationally I I would think have done a a tremendous job over the last you know three four years and uh, they've done a very good job of identifying talent early and uh, and and, and really putting us in a position to to play on the very top players and you know we've we've had some interesting decisions each year to to make you know there was a time a few years ago we decided to put most of our uh, most of our pool in the one player, which was in Ed Rosario. Um, and it wasn't something that we thought we would do every year, but we felt like he was someone who, you know, was a unique talent uh, that, that deserved that type of, uh, uh, that type of commitment. Other years we've, we've sprouted around. And uh, I think we've gotten a lot of good players when we've done that. Uh, you know, in this particular year, we felt like there were a couple of players that we had targeted very early that um, we felt were some of the better players in the class and, you know, maybe there was a way for us to, to add two of them. And uh, so we'll see if that if that comes to fruition. But the, the two guys in question have been, you know, Jimenez from Venezuela and, and, um, and Guerrero from the Dominican Republic. Um, different types of players. You know, they both have played shortstop. I think both capable of playing other places as well, uh, although I think they'll continue to play there, uh, certainly in the time being. Uh, and having two teams in the Dominican helps us do that. Um, Jimenez, left-handed hitter, I think very gifted with the bat, um, has terrific hand-eye coordination, um, has a very good feel for the strike zone, um, and at a very young age, I think just showed an advanced feel uh, with the bat, and uh, and just you just don't come across that many guys that have a knack for barreling up the ball uh, as consistently as he does, and that was exciting. And we probably you know defensively certainly has the tools to stick in the middle of the diamond. So, you know, we're talking about a left-handed hitter we think has a chance to hit. Near or at the top of a lineup uh, and play a premium defensive position, so certainly an attractive, attractive guy. Um, Guerrero, a um, little bit more like Rosario. It's a right-handed hitter. Um, there's some, uh, there's some real power potential in there. He's a loose, athletic body. Um, he's going to be a good defender, uh, sort of wherever he is. I, I, could see him having enough power to, to even play third um, if it ends up going that way. But uh, you know, he looks to do a little bit more damage with the bat. And uh, when he lets it loose, it can happen. So, you know, excited to get both both these guys if it happens. And, uh, you know, I think it would be a, a great day for the Mets and, and uh, a real credit to, you know, our, our scouts and our scouting department throughout Latin America. Uh, they've, they've really done a great job.
1: So what are you looking for? You sort of alluded to uh, these two players, their bats playing at different positions as well. Obviously when you're signing 16 year olds out of Latin America, they're almost always signed as uh, shortstops catchers or center fielders, but realistically that doesn't always work out that way. So how important is it an up the middle defensive projection in the future for you guys and how much of it is just, we want to get premium talent and then we'll figure out where to play them.
0: You know, it, it's probably more the latter Jeff, you know, cause there's so much we don't know when they're 16, <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we we do our best and we try to learn as much as we can, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, the difference between what they are right now at 16 and what they're going to be, you know, when they're 22 or 24, uh, we just can't, you know, we, we don't have a crystal ball to perfectly predict what they're going to look like, even what they're going to be like physically. Um, so I think we, we really look for underlying skills and, um, you know, in in both of these cases, we feel like there's some there's some real underlying skill. And sometimes that's about strikes and judgment, or about hand-eye. Other times it's uh, it's just natural power uh, that a guy has, that uh, uh, the impact he makes at contact. Um, but then defensively, you know, we certainly look for guys that that can move around because again, at 16, if we feel like they're stuck in a particular position, uh, let's say it's hey, this guy's second base only, or he's first base only, or something like that. Um, Boy, it puts an awful lot of pressure on the rest of their game, and uh, if we feel like they have a chance to move around a lot defensively, um, they could end up being plus defensively in a position. Uh, their back could profile very differently depending on where they might be able to play. So it, it just gives us gives us a lot more outs, you know, in, in poker speak, as these guys, you know, move into uh, move through physical uh, maturity, you know, and through the ages of sixteen to you know twenty two or twenty four.
1: Now you guys have had a uh, a lot of luck, sort of at the the lower range of the July second signings, uh, throughout the last few years. Rafael Montero probably being the most uh, the most notable name, but I saw Luis Carpio the past uh, weekend, and he looked very good. And he wasn't a, a seven figure guy, but you know you go seven figures for Ahmed Rosario, and here you're probably going to go for two top line July second signings. I think Baseball America had him number two and number six overall. Was this in the works for a while? was this sort of a strategy that was born out of not having a first round pick this year? do you guys view sort of the talent acquisition amateur talent acquisition as a holistic thing between international free agents in the draft or is this sort of there are they sort of separate silos uh
0: no, I think we view it uh holistically that said there is a little bit of an apple and orange uh feel to it because you know it's a, it's a lot different if you're taking. Uh, Michael Conforto out of Oregon State or 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 signing a med Rosario uh, out of the Dominican Republic, even though they're both high high profile signs of both significant investments. Um, you know, they you're uh, they, they are uh, very different types of investments, you know, that, that we're making at, at that at those particular times. Um, you know, I think very much like the amateur draft though, in, in each and every year internationally, we try to take what the market offers us, you know, and, and in certain years If we feel like there's top talent that's available for what we believe is a reasonable investment, then, then that's how we'll allocate uh, our cap space. In other years, if we feel like the top talent that we really like, um, is, uh, is beyond what we think it ought to go for or will otherwise restrict us, or we think that there's so much depth that we might be able to get uh, a basket of players, um, all for, you know, all in the six figure range that uh, could turn out to be a much better portfolio, then that's what we'll do. You know, the, the year we did that, you know, not only did we get Carpio, who we're, we're very excited about, but we also got Ali Sanchez, who is uh, who's a terrific player. And I right just came back from
1: that. Washington this morning. He looked really good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Um, and we got Ricardo Cespedes in that class, and we got Jeffrey Diaz in that class. And, um, and there are some pictures that we've gotten, too. Uh, again, as I said before, there's just so much we don't know about these guys uh, that we don't fool ourselves uh, by thinking we're so smart that we know exactly what we're going to do, and and sometimes by by spreading it out and um, you know you end up doing a lot better. We've we've signed some you know some pitchers for twenty thousand dollars or forty thousand dollars who turned out to be really interesting prospects for us uh, because they really blossomed you know a year or two after we signed them, and there are guys that we've signed for six figures who um, you know haven't gotten out of uh, the Dominican summer league. Uh, just because they haven't they haven't lived up to the potential we thought they had, but uh, but by and large, I think we approach each year with with open eyes um, and and sort of a fresh mind and say, okay, what do we think this class is going to offer us, and how we can how can we uh, best allocate the the capital that we have.
1: So turning to the the draft this past June, you talked a little bit about this with uh, Chris McShane in spring training, but you didn't have a first round pick this year. So how did that sort of play out for you from sort of a a scouting and targeting standpoint? What what were the differences between this year and the past years when you may have been targeting, you know, sort of the consensus top 20 guys?
0: Sure. Uh, It it changed our focus, there's no doubt. I mean, we we still did our due diligence on all the players that we thought were going to be sort of top 20, top 30 type players because you never know. Uh, Someone could slip, you know, into where we were picking at 53 and we wanted to be ready uh, to capitalize on that should that occur. So, you know, we still scouted those players, but uh, we didn't spend so many resources scouting those players in terms of, you know, national cross checkers, seeing them multiple times or having four or five different scouts, see any one guy that we did spend more time on players that we thought were going to go, you know, anywhere from, you know, 50 to 200. And I think we, we got more looks, at those players than we traditionally would. And I uh, felt like we were really, really well-prepared, you know, for those rounds this year. I mean, I think we've, we've always felt like we were well-prepared, but this year in particular, I think we were able to get a little bit deeper into the draft with multiple looks uh, on players. And uh, I think that, that proved to be to be helpful.
1: So, of course, you ended up deciding on Desmond Lindsay with the second round pick. And I know he was at the uh, Metropolitan Baseball Classic last summer. So when... when- did he start to enter the picture as a as a target in that spot? And sort of what was the winnowing down process like?
0: Well, you know, he, he's been a guy for, for a couple of years, certainly on that on that travel ball circuit. And we had seen him last summer uh, quite a bit, even before he came to the Metropolitan Games. But then we, we all got to see him sort of up close and personal there. And, you know, I think our feeling going into the spring was that it, it was unrealistic that he would uh, he would be there at, at 53, but we kept our eyes on him, and, and he did have a hamstring er, er, uh, injury fairly early in his season. And so we just sort of stayed on top of it because we we didn't know um, what was going to happen. You know, sometimes just by virtue of a guy missing some time, uh, it can really hurt his his draft status. And um, this, especially as a high school player, because their their schedules. Just aren't very robust so um it's not like he has a 60 game schedule and was going to miss 10 you know he may have had a 25 or 30 game schedule and was going to miss 15 you know um so he was going to be hard to see and unfortunately again our, our guys on the domestic amateur side i think had done such a great job uh as they always do every summer um you know proactively scouting these guys 10 11 months in advance that uh, we had a lot of great info on Desmond, and uh, ultimately weren't weren't afraid with the injury, and and were, you know, very comfortable with the talent level and with all the looks that we had gotten uh, over the course of the previous twelve months. Um, so I think we were we were very pleased that we were in a position to uh, to take him uh, there at fifty three.
1: He's of course a Florida guy, and it's in the nature of drafting high school baseball players that you will inevitably pick a lot of people from the state of Florida which certainly happened this year um, also behind behind him the florida prep lefties thomas apucky and max Wodle. Um, now you said in the answer to the previous question you're pretty you're more comfortable in sort of those guys in the 50 to 200 range so for prep arms like zapucky and wodel who would have sort of been in that range maybe guys that there's signability concerns you don't know how how sort of Tight, their uh, their sort of college plans are. Is is getting more looks at those guys, getting your scouts and your cross checkers to see them. You know, it's it's sort of the usual talking to the family, seeing them multiple times. Did you sort of get more comfortable with what their bonus demands were going to be, and sort of the spot you could pick them?
0: No doubt, no doubt. And I think as we uh, evaluated this class very early in the spring, uh, we felt like it was it was deep, uh, sort of unusually deep. In high school, left-handed pitching, and you know, it's not something the draft has a whole lot of. Very often, uh, it's not something we've taken a lot of, you know, the last few years. And so we felt like, boy, this this might be an opportunity for us to not just get one, but but maybe we'll even get two. Um, and uh, you know, we, we didn't realize that we were actually going to get three, <laughs> you know, but uh, but it was something we were looking at very early on and thought, geez, it, it'd be good to get to. Get one of these guys. Let's make sure we really know the whole group of them well. Uh, and there was a group of about seven or eight of them that uh, we got a lot of looks at. Uh, we got a lot of comfort with. We wanted to make sure we, we tried to get them in the right order. You know, when we were we were in the draft and um, and at the end of the day had uh, had a tremendous amount of comfort in uh, in calling their names. You know, Wotel is uh, from North Carolina. We had seen him just an awful lot. Uh, and then uh, you know Zappke, as you mentioned from Florida, and then and then Jake Simon from Houston. Um, again, we had early looks at all those guys. we had seen a lot of them last summer, um, but early looks from our area guys um, this spring, and then followed up by relatively early looks from uh, from uh, cross checkers, and uh, and then even our scouting director. We saw uh, these guys multiple times, so it was um, we were we were just in a really good position to be able to take them. So I think we were. We were really pleased that uh, the draft fell the way it did and gave us a chance to take those guys. We didn't feel the draft was particularly deep, and you know, in, in other areas. So um, uh, this was an area we, we certainly wanted to capitalize, and we were fortunate that we were able to.
1: So do you sort of evaluate that sort of year by year? Because I know back in in 2011, when you guys selected Brandon Nimmo, the sort of the idea behind that pick was well, there were wa- there weren't a lot of prep bats. You know, there's there was, there was a very deep in arms, but I think you say that you could felt you could find arms later in the draft, but couldn't find bats. So, so, so here is it is sort of you decide whether you're picking from depth or from scarcity, or does it just come down to, you know, we have a feel on this guy, especially towards you know Nemo was the top half of the first round pick, where you just want to get your guy.
0: Yeah, you know, it it, it depends. Uh, it really does. You know, I I think that going back to 2011, uh, it was a combination really of two things. We felt like there were very very few bats, uh, in the draft in general, uh, prep or college. So if we wanted one, we were going to have to use that first pick to get one. We also felt like there was a lot of really good college pitching and we knew a lot of it was going to go there in the first round, but we felt like we could get uh, pretty solid guys after that, you know, and, and fortunately for us, we got, you know, Verrett in the third round. Um, we got Mazzoni in the second round. We got Leathersich in the fifth round. I mean, it turned out to, you know, three guys who've all made their big league debuts this year. Um, so i think that that proved out you know there was there was some good depth there in, in college pitching that year and we felt like we could uh, you know get it at, at some point after the first round um, other years it's um, you know it's a totally different dynamic you know and in, in some years there isn't depth of anything you know this year in particular there, was, there were, again this handful of high school left-handed pitching um, but we wouldn't necessarily have gone after it if we felt like boy we, we have to get You know, a bat right here because they're we're just not going to get them anywhere else. We felt like there there were some. We felt like we were going to get some, you know, throughout the draft, and we we felt like we were going to get some of the other things we were looking for in different areas of the draft. Um, So it was an opportunity to take a shot at these uh, at these high school lefties. Um, You know, and and two of them were up high. We took one in the third and one in the fifth, but then we waited until the eleventh to take the other one. So you know, in between there, we were taking a lot of other you know, types of guys. Um, so sometimes, uh, it's, a, it's a long-winded answer to your question, but sometimes if there's scarcity, we may jump on it right away. Um, other times, um, if there's depth, uh, we may, you know, go after it if we feel like we have a chance to load up on it. And uh, it's just a matter of where in the draft we decide to do that. You know, for instance, this year we felt like there were a lot, a lot of really solid college middle infielders really solid players. You know, uh, second baseman and shortstop, guys who may, you know, more than likely end up at second base, but there were a bunch of them. Uh, you know, six, eight guys. And, uh, you know, one of the guys we really liked in that group was Vinny Sienna. And we felt like a lot of these other guys were going to go pretty early in the draft. And a lot of them did. A lot of them went even before we selected, you know, at 53. And then some other guys went, you know, shortly thereafter. And uh, so, we felt incredibly fortunate to get you know, Sienna. Um, you know, after the tenth round, because we felt like, you know, he was he was comparable, you know, to some of those guys, and yet we didn't. Uh, you know, we could use that high pick on on some of these other players that wouldn't be available, you know, uh, later on.
1: So during your tenure with the uh, the Mets front office, the draft system has changed under the new collective bargaining agreement obviously that first draft in 2011 you could maybe be a little more aggressive and were a little more aggressive uh in later rounds you know giving things like bradley marquez a a split deal you know going over slot for uh for prep arms but of course now with the sort of more hard slotting you're a little bit limited in that regard was that something sort of when you guys came in that you were targeting, given the fact that the the Mets organization previous to you had been sort of very conservative and very rigorous in terms of obeying sort of the suggested slots. And is there sort of a, a disappointment that you only sort of got one year to kind of load up on that kind of talent?
0: <laughs> uh, sure. You know, in, in some respects, you know, looking back on it, we knew that it was, it was the last year of that system, we didn't necessarily know exactly what it was going to look like going forward, but we figured it would be more restrictive. So it, it was sort of a final opportunity um, to try to load up a little bit, and uh, and we did that, you know, at least to the extent that that we could. And um, you know, I, could, do we wish that had gone on a, a few more years? Yeah, absolutely. You know, because I think we realized that there was a way to play it where uh, we could have gotten real value you know, for those investments that we were making. But, um, you know, but even as the system changed, you know, I think we've um, done a really solid job of managing our our cap and putting ourselves in a position to be really flexible and and get interesting players sort of throughout the draft. And uh, whether it's throughout the top 10 rounds or even after the 10th round, using some of that cap space we have. Um, I think our guys, you know, Tommy Tanis is our scouting director. I think he's done a great job of, of managing it and it, it's very difficult to manage on the fly as you're going through the draft and trying to figure out what it is that you might have have available, um, how much you think you might be able to assign some of these guys for um, and it's moving very quickly and uh, so not only are you trying to uh, create flexibilities for yourself but you're also trying to deploy uh, that capital and it's um, it's all happening in real time and sometimes the rounds only last for you know, 20 minutes before you have to pick again. Um, But I think, you know, by and large, uh, we've been able to do it pretty effectively and pretty creatively in order to, you know, add, you know, uh, some extra talent in the draft. And and it may mean, in any given year, it may mean only adding one more player that you get. And that player may not even turn out uh, to be anything. He he may top out at double A. but, you know, you add an extra player that you think is talented, each and every year, you, know, you do that four or five years in a row. Um, you know, someone's going to end up getting to the big leagues and making a difference for you, and uh, you know, hopefully, that'll end up you know, being the case with us.
1: And the system has graduated a lot of big league players in recent years. Um, Mets fans can't complain about the arms they've seen, obviously. Um, Stephen Matt's the the latest of those, um, but given sort of the offensive woes the team has had this year. How soon would you guys be willing to you know maybe jump a guy like a Michael Conforto who's a polished uh college bat that's hitting in double a given sort of the knee injury to michael candyer or or someone like even Brandon Nemo, who I know is on the forty man is that a consideration at this point in time
0: you know jeff it, we're we're constantly trying to Strike, uh, strike this balance in development between challenging a player enough so that he continues to grow, but not too much so that he can't be successful. Right, and because sometimes if you challenge a player too much, um, it can actually retard his development and, and it can be really dangerous for, for his long-term growth. Um, so we're I mean, this is something we we battle every single day with. 300 players, you know, that we have in the minor leagues, trying to figure out what the right level is for them uh, to be pushed, uh, but not pushed too hard. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that's that's incredibly difficult is that last step from Triple A to the big leagues uh, is clearly the most difficult one. I mean, you're reaching the top echelon of players. You face nothing but great pitching. Um, you're playing in front of 30,000, 40,000 people and the expectations from everybody are extremely high and they may be, um, uh, they may be too high. They may be unrealistically high. And I think the reality is for most young position players, uh, it takes, um, uh, it, it can take 700, 900, 1200 plate appearances at the major league level for them to really start getting their sea lights. Um, so I, You know, now there are some players who come right up and are good right away. Uh, Those players are position players, I'm talking about. Those players are pretty rare. Um, It's just very difficult to perform at this level right away. Um, For other players, it takes time. And I think if you look around the league, most of the guys who are good players today, you know, you go back and look at their rookie seasons and they weren't nearly as impressive, you know, as, as rookies. So in the position, it's a long way of saying, in the position that we're in right now, to ask any one of our young players to sort of come up here and make a difference to our offense um, is just a lot to ask. And, and it might be it might be unrealistic. Uh, it might not. You know, there's some guys who do it. Uh, again, um, it, it does happen. But um, it's a lot easier for a pitcher to come up and make an immediate impact than it is for a hitter. You know, a pitcher ultimately is is, uh, is largely in control of what he's doing. If his stuff is good enough, and he executes his stuff, uh, in terms of locating it and, and pitching in the right sequences. He's going to get hitters out, uh, no matter, no matter who's standing in the box. For a hitter, it's a lot different. A hitter's reacting to the pitcher, um, and to what the pitcher throws up there. And, and for that reason, um, I think it's a, it's a much tougher transition, uh, for hitters than it is for pitchers and, and why it takes a little longer for them to be successful at the major league level.
1: And speaking of those pitchers, um, as I alluded to before, since 2012, the system has graduated Matt Harvey, Zach Wheeler, Jacob Degrom, Noah Syndergaard, and now Stephen Matz. That's a pretty good list of arms. But I, and this is not a fair question, I'm about to ask you. I will, I will stay that out front. Who's the sort of the next guy you guys really like in the system from a pitching standpoint? Jeff, you're greedy. I am. I know. you um,
0: are creating. There are a lot of guys we like. There, there really are. I think you know. Uh, you didn't mention Montero, and I know he's been sure. uh, up and down. But um, you know, there, there are a bunch of guys I think in different, and maybe even in different roles that we like for different reasons. And uh, I'm gonna. I feel bad here because I'm gonna leave guys out who don't deserve to be left out. But um, you know, Michael Fulmer is having a terrific year in AA. Uh, he was a compensation round pick for us out of high school in 2011. Um, He's got pretty big stuff. I mean, it's it's low to mid nineties with uh, with good breaking ball. Um, So you know, I I think he's getting close. Uh, Casey Casey Meisner, we're very excited about. Uh, He's our third rounder in two thousand thirteen. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, two thousand thirteen. He's a six foot seven uh, strike thrower. He just who has a feel for three pitches. He's got great playing to what he does. Um, works fast, just attacks his own. Really advanced for a guy his age. You know, Marcus Molina, who we signed out of Dominican Republic. Now unfortunately, he's been down for uh, I think about five or six weeks now. But um, he was the number one prospect last year in the New York Penn League at just 19 years old. Um, he's got he's got plus stuff and throws a lot of strikes. He was in the Florida State League this year before he went down. Um, you know, those are at least you know a few guys. Let alone some of the guys we took in this year's draft. I mean, guys like Lotel and Zipucky and, and Simon, we, we've got, uh, you know, high hopes, uh, high hopes for some of those guys. Um, again, that doesn't even count guys like, uh, you know, like Matt Bowman, who's in, who's in triple A, um, or even some of the guys who just got here, guys like Barrett and Robles that, uh, that we feel like could be uh, really significant contributors um, in a particular role. So uh, there's still pitching sort of up and down the system and, and we, we, we still feel like we have, even from a starting pitching standpoint, we feel like we have some guys who are, uh, who are progressing and, and getting close and, and uh, are you know, legitimate major league starting pitchers.
1: All right. Paul DiPodesta, Vice President of Player Development and Scouting for the New York Mets. It's July 2nd, and I feel like I've taken up enough of your time. But thanks for coming on. No problem. My pleasure.